Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. People like my guest, Emma Greenwood. Most like to be remembered for is to help create a positive change. So to be a part of allowing people to see their own power as an individual, no matter what your age, your gender, your race, your class, everyone's voice has power. Emma Greenwood is the Youth MP for Bury and an environmental activist. She's committed to challenging the government to deliver on its promises when it comes to climate change. It's clear to Emma that the climate crisis can't be separated from the many other inequalities that exist in this world and that they all need to be challenged. She wants to help everyone, no matter their background, to have a voice. You'll hear how this 17-year-old from Ramsbottom has been inspired to have the confidence to speak up and to hold power to account. In a world where it can be tempting to think that you don't have a voice, Emma is here to persuade you that it's okay to talk about things you feel passionately about and you don't need a doctorate to do it. Emma, thank you for being my guest on We Built This City. No problem at all. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So before we start, I want to play a clip of your speech as a young MP for Bury in the House of Commons in December 2019, because when I heard this, I got goosebumps. <laughs> thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. I'm Emma Greenwood from Bury Northwest. The time for change is now. We're the last people that have the power to do something. We need to stop putting profit in front of preservation and protection. It is estimated we have 12 years to take action and this action must be drastic. So far this year we've lost 18.7 million acres of rainforest and 2,000 species have become extinct. These numbers are not opinions but facts. Further supporting the scientists who continue to fight to get those in power to see the threat our planet is under. Every single one of us is going to feel the effects of climate change. So denial is no longer an option. We need to stop treating it as a what-if scenario and realise it is just a question of when. The Chief Executive of the Environment Agency has warned that within 25 years England may not have enough clean water to support the current demand. I want this to scare you. This should not be something we are growing to accept. This is so much more than political problems, austerity, capitalism or Brexit. This is the existence of our planet. This is our future. So we need to see those in power act and put their differences aside to ensure that current and future generations have access to one of the most basic human rights the right to a safe place to live. So I urge you to support this motion so that we can ensure the UK can work in unity with other countries across the world to tackle the one thing that no one is safe from. Thank you. It was incredible to get to speak in Parliament and I still think about it now and go, I don't even know how I ever got to that point. It's amazing. Mm. Um, and like, I've been so desperate to speak because I had the, I prepared this speech, but it was never guaranteed that you got to speak. And so I had the adrenaline rushing through me of like, oh my God, I'm actually going to get to speak in Parliament, which is something I've dreamed about doing for years and years. And I just got so many platforms coming off from that of people going, would you like to speak at this event where they'd never had anyone under the age of 30 at some places come and speak. So to be able to bring a voice of a young person to those spaces off the back of that was incredible. 
Just amazing. And the whole thing, I mean, it did absolutely make the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because just even the reaction in the commons to you, towards you, and clearly the support that you had from people around you who felt on the same page as you was absolutely, it was incredible. So what really got me in this speech was your line, I want you to be scared. What should we be scared of? What will happen if we don't tackle the crisis we're faced with? And what my future Mm. will look like if it isn't treated with the seriousness that it needs? You talk about the fact that we need to stop putting profit in front of preservation and protection. So just tell me a bit more about that. That's one of my favourite lines. And I think I thought about it in the September strike I did in 2019, which was the general strike for climate. It's one of the biggest ones we'd done in Manchester at the time. And it stuck with me because we're constantly seeing governments making promises and pledges and like agreeing to the Paris Agreement and signing up to be carbon neutral by 2050. But it all just seems to be promises. And yet when they take action and they put policies in place, it always seems to contradict the promises that they've made. And as a young person, it can just get really angry that you spend hours of your time volunteering to try and push for change. And decision makers go, yes, we're hearing you, we're listening to you. And yet everything, every action they take seems to contradict that. And kind of that phrase and kind of came into my head and it just seemed to put it into words perfectly. So first of all, Emma, you're a born and bred Greater Mancunian and you were born in Ramsbottom and you're currently at Holy Cross College, lower sixth form, studying politics, economics and geography A-levels, where you're also a student eco ambassador. And you clearly love um, having grown up in Ramsbottom and I think your love of the place and its scenery has been influential in you wanting to protect the environment around you. Is that right? It has been a huge, huge influence. I've got, um, quite close to my house, I've got Holcombe Hill, which has got Peel Tower on it. And I'll kind of, over the years as I've grown up, I've retreated up there for a sort of peace of mind because it's just so quiet. It's kind of up at the very top of the valley and you can just look down and see kind of everywhere around. You can see all the way to Manchester on a clear day. And I think it just helps put everything into perspective because I think the world's just so chaotic, especially during the pandemic. And so to be able to just take an hour to walk up there and realise everything is never as bad as it seems. And that even though kind of the world just seems so chaotic, the sun still rises and sets and everything in nature just carries on. And for me, there's a certain sense of tranquility that I find in that. And I think part of the work I do on a, on a more personal level is to protect that because the thought of me not having that place to come back to when I'm older, it, it genuinely petrifies me. Mm. I think the definitely realise in the past 12 months that there's so much on our doorstep in Greater Manchester. It's just been incredible and everyone's really kind of been happier to be in their own environments, haven't they? I think we've all experienced and appreciated nature and our environment much more than we perhaps did before. Most definitely. I know that around Mm. me I've found so many random paths, which is why I love England, because the amount of public (laughs) footpaths that there are, cutting through like random fields with cows in, it's absolutely great. And I've just gone on like days of walks and it's been incredible i know i've like watched whole families of geese and swan grow up and i got really (laughs) protective like i'd count them every day to make sure that they were all they were all safe so i'm going to list some of the other roles that you currently hold while studying obviously in very challenging circumstances so your youth advisor for the co-op the environment agency and the greater manchester combined authority and you're a volunteer at Youth Strike Manchester and the UK Student Climate Network. So I can't believe that you're actually doing all of that, but have I missed anything out? So in March, I was supposed to sit my GCSEs, but it just never happened. So I had a six-month summer that I was like, what am I going to do? I'd never have, I'd never in my life had this long off school, never mind mm. in a pandemic where you couldn't leave the house. 
and because we couldn't strike anymore I was sort of I had a fear that I would just feel powerless again and I'd sort of go back to the state that I was in before I got involved in environmental mm-hmm. activism and activism as a whole so I signed up to be part of Fridays for Future Digital which is a worldwide collective or branch of Fridays for Future which is all around environmental activism I'm the outreach coordinator for Fridays for Future Digital and I have been since March of last year and we've managed to do campaigns around Defend the Defenders, so Indigenous rights. We've raised awareness around natural disasters and it's around education because I think that's a big aspect that we've taken on activism during COVID is the fact of as soon as you educate people and you empower them, when we can eventually get out there again and actually physically meet in person, we hope we would have educated people more and hopefully get more support. I was going to ask you, how do you do activism in a lockdown? People I've spoken to on the podcast in the past 12 months who are activists or who are running, say, for example, Mark Fletcher from Pride, has actually said to me that he's found it easier to engage with a wider audience in actual fact through having to pivot and to take activism and engagement online. Have you found a similar experience? I would say that one of the good things over the pandemic is slightly the amount of time that people have been spending online and on social media. Because I do think sometimes activism can be a bit of an echo chamber where it can just be really hard to get things out of the people that are already actively engaged, which aren't necessarily the people you're trying to educate or, I suppose, win over to your cause. So over the pandemic, we've had a lot more engagement online and we've managed to attend a lot of virtual events that we might not have been able to do prior to this because obviously we're all full-time students so it's given us an opportunity to expand who we're working with and to attend more events and do more networking which isn't something that we would have had chance to do probably otherwise. You also describe yourself as an eco-feminist so tell me what that means for you. For me environmental activism isn't just about the environment itself it interchanges so many different themes it's an intersectional topic so it includes racism it includes racial justice it includes social justice it includes environmental justice and so i think to look at all of these movements as separate entities is never going to solve any one of them because you can't have racial justice without environmental justice and vice versa and so by an environmental feminist i like to see myself as somebody that wants to try and solve all of these problems because i just don't think you can do one on its own and looking at them as individual aspects i don't think helps anyone and i suppose over the past 12 months again there's been so much awareness of those different social issues do you think that's helped young people in particular be aware of of what needs to change oh definitely around especially around the black lives matter movement i know that i personally didn't i was a passive ally is what i would call myself obviously i didn't try and be racist i was never purposefully racist but by default i was because i never tried to actively do anything to use my white privilege as a way to support black people And over the past six to nine months, I've done a lot of education and reading because it just isn't something that's covered in the curriculum at school, which is, I suppose, why it's still a kind of underlying structural problem. Because I've heard you say that you have been raised to believe in equality and to use your privilege to help others. So can you expand on that? Oh, most definitely. My parents have played a huge part in instilling within me this view that I do have a lot of privilege, whether it's because I was raised in the UK, where we have privilege to kind of be able to strike and do activism in a safe way. I've got white privilege in the sense that my skin colour protects me, but I've also got certain things that act against me. So my gender obviously is a big one that I have. I've have had problems with in the past at school. Kind of, I love doing subjects like technology and computer science. 
ending in technology, I was the only girl that took it for GCSE. And so I think I've always realised that there's both things that I have working for me and against me. And if I have that, then there must be people out there who have so many things working against them. And it's just incredibly hard for them mm -hmm. to push for the change they need and for the justice that they need on their behalf. And so I've always sort of seen it as my obligation to use the privilege that I've got to help lift their voices up and help support them and push for the change that is needed to make their lives better. And would you say that your friends and your fellow students feel the same way as you or do you think there's not the same level of awareness of privilege that you have? I think a lot of it is to do with how you're raised and the things that you're around because it isn't it's definitely something that's more individualistic because I suppose racism and climate change are still things that structurally just aren't there they're not things that are acknowledged and they're certainly not things that are taught in the curriculum and so a lot of it is to do with the people that you surround yourself with the opportunities that you've raised with which I think is part of where the downfall is because it shouldn't have to be something that kids have to invest the time in to learn about because some people just don't have the privilege mm. of time to be able to learn about all of these issues and to learn what they can do. I think definitely campaigns over the past 12 months again by lots of people including people like Marcus Rashford they've made it's mainstream to understand the disparity in terms of social yeah. standing. Most definitely, and I think COVID in a way has had its positive aspects, few and far between they are. It's the fact that I think it's brought to life a lot of social problems that were there. It's exacerbated them. Mm. They're not new problems, They're not things that were never there before. It's just things that people have been able to deny or sort of push under the rug because they weren't blatantly there in front of you. Whereas now things like free school meals are things that are fundamental. Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And you're 17. For such a young person, you've already achieved probably much more than many people would have done in their lifetime around any movement. Have you felt connected to the environment from being very young? I used to hate being outdoors for some reason. When I was younger, I just didn't like walking. <laughs> I didn't like getting muddy. I was definitely more of a homebody. But I think as I've gotten older and I've become more connected to technology and I suppose my mental health has become more susceptible to the negative impacts of technology and social media and we kind of we all know the positives and negatives of those but I've realised that nature is fundamental in ensuring my own well-being so getting outdoors whether it's for a run in the morning to wake myself up or for a walk in the afternoon to sort of clear my head after being on college for hours it's definitely something that I've grown into and that I've come to realise the value of and I suppose that's part of growing up isn't it you sort of realise what's important and what's not. Yeah, I can relate to that because I could never get my kids out of the front door after they were about eight years old. That was it. And I've encouraged them to do that more. Certainly in the pandemic has helped because I think just you've had to go and do it just yeah. for the, as you say, for your mental health. And I was reading something the other day which was said, it's not just about coming away from your desk, even if you're a student or if you're working at home and getting on a treadmill or doing some weights is actually being in nature so you need to get out it's not just the exercise it's the absorbing nature around you it is completely and i think the power of fresh air is so underutilized there's just something as soon as you step outdoors and you kind of even if it's cars that you hear there's just something nice about it to get out of the setting that you may have been sat and done working all day and to get outdoors and to sort of see nature blooming in all the different seasons there's just something reliable about it and it's one of the only constants i suppose in such a chaotic world you've done incredible work both as an activist campaigner and politically as a young mp do these two things go hand in hand? Do they work together well? Oh, most definitely. Um, in 2019, the topic voted by the young people in the UK as the most important was protect the environment. 
so obviously the climate crisis as a whole is a very relevant thing to young people and is something that like the majority of us feel passionate about and so through my role as a youth MP I've managed to sort of lift up the work I'm doing as an environmental activist and they've both been I suppose fundamental in helping to achieve the change that I have so far. And you spearheaded the local Greater Manchester Youth Strike for Climate campaign for two years and have been instrumental on the school climate change strikes in Manchester throughout 2019, which then the PM Theresa May described as a waste of lesson time. What has that experience been like for you? In Manchester as a whole, we've had a lot of support. I'm not going to deny that at the start it wasn't easy. We definitely met a lot of resistance from adults who just kind of saw it as a way for us to skip classes and an excuse for us to skip school. And it was a sort of fight to validate ourselves, I suppose, also to prove that we're doing something Mm. positive. But after about three months, um, we got Andy Burnham to come and speak at the strike. And he sort of, I suppose, validated it for other people. And after that, we got so much support from the Mm. media in Manchester, from... um, kind of public figures, MPs, companies offering to help with us because obviously we're all teenagers, we'd never done media interaction, we'd never done big scale event coordination and as Manchester as a whole the community really came together to help us which is why I'm so happy to kind of say that I've grown up in Manchester. And you talk about having had adult allies which must be very important so how did you feel supported at the time? Adult allies are just a a fundamental in the youth strike movement because even though we're young people striking, we are only teenagers, full-time students, and we don't know everything about the climate crisis and we never claim to. We're just trying to give a voice to the science that kind of scientists have been sharing for years, but people, it's been falling on deaf ears. And adult allies have been fundamental in helping us learn and grow. Um, I can't even explain how much I've grown as a person over the past two years from the help from adults and I probably wouldn't be here without them. Organisations like Climate Emergency Manchester and Greenhouse PR have helped us with media interaction, setting up petitions and all the official stuff that just isn't something you get taught in school and to be honest a lot of adults never really get taught either so to have those people who are so skilled in it and I suppose have invested all of their life in doing this has been invaluable. I think that's a really important point and I think it's very important that older generations do really give a hand up the ladder to younger people that are coming up and particularly now spend more time kind of mentoring or help to share their experience. The climate crisis isn't something that's just going to affect me because the fact is that it's already affecting us. We've seen more flooding than ever before. I don't think there's a year that's gone by recently where we haven't had some form of flooding in Greater Manchester. Um, And we've had the forest fires, obviously, in Australia, and we've got the deep freeze now in Texas and things like this. So it's not like it's a far Mm. off problem that just my generation is going to be affected by. It's already affecting us. And so it's not just a one generation can fix this sort of problem or like, oh, we can leave it to them, they'll solve it. And so it is something that everyone has to get involved in. And I'm so glad that kind of everyone is. So you've got a real army of supporters behind you, which I think is always important, isn't it, to make things happen. I'm really interested in how we find our voice and the fact that definitely right now, this whole cancel culture on social media If you don't have all the information, it's very easy to lose your voice or have a smaller voice because you don't feel confident that you have the right to make your feelings known. Is that something that you can relate to and you've seen yourself? Cancel culture, I don't, I definitely don't see as something that's helping anyone or any movement. I think as soon as you, somebody does something wrong and you don't give them a chance to then learn from that or to educate themselves, it just doesn't it doesn't help your movement it doesn't help them it doesn't cause any long-term change and i don't think it's working with the problem 
And so mm -hmm. I think what needs to be done is that you need to tell someone that they've done something wrong. That's completely fine. Picking someone up on something and people have done it to me. And I've always been grateful in a sense, because if nobody ever tells you they've done something wrong, you'll just go mm -hmm. throughout life believing that that's the right thing, which it isn't. But to then kind of not give that person a chance to, I suppose, make amends for what they did or act in a different way next time. It's just it's not helping to push for any long term change that's needed. What do you feel about people who just don't have the confidence, even though they might feel strongly about something, but they don't feel that they know all the detail, have all the information to hand. They don't have the degree in the subjects, which is around a social cause. How would you encourage them to actually learn to find that voice and not be afraid of saying how they feel about things, even if they don't know absolutely the last piece of detail on the subject? I definitely say that with a lot of social movements it's it's not something that you need to have a degree on it's not something that you need to have this like encyclopedic knowledge on because it's something that you're living you're an expert in this this injustice or you're an expert in this problem because it's something that you're living with and it's something that you're experiencing so it shouldn't have to be this thing that has to be validated and taught by someone else in order for you to believe that it's correct if it's something that you've lived through an experience that you've had and you believe it's an injustice your voice has a right to be heard and you have a right to stand up for that and so with the climate crisis, it's something that no one's safe from. And so it's not something that you need to go to university and get a degree to understand. It's just something that you need to realise we're living with and that there are things that you can do to help make change as an individual. And they don't all have to be sort of becoming a climate scientist and doing all the kind of t carbon technology. Just emailing your MP or just being a social citizen as a whole can make a huge difference. And where would you advise people who really want to find out more but don't want to be overwhelmed by having to go down the rabbit hole of papers and, and legislation? Where's a really good first stop for people to educate themselves around the issues? There's so many papers out there that I've had a go at reading and just mm. the, the absolute jargon and the high-level yeah. terminology, it just <laughs> can't get my head around it. But if there's so many accounts to follow on social media like Fridays for Future Digital, um, the UK Student Climate Network that create infographics about things like the Paris Agreement, things like COP26, because they're all things that are talked about in the news and we're somehow assumed to understand. And yet it's something that we're never taught about. And it's really weird that we sort of assume everyone knows something that's never been spoken about before. And so young people have been kind of, and myself have been trying to do a lot to help break down those barriers and to help stop making assumptions that people know things that we've never formally been taught. Well, I completely agree with that. I mean, going back to Theresa May's comment that it was a waste of lesson time, in actual fact, there are very few lessons going on actually to educate young people about climate change. And I think I read the statistics, probably on one of your feeds, that about only 4% of students feel that they've got enough information to even do anything about it. And 75% of teachers don't feel equipped to even have those really important conversations. How can we improve that, would you say? So there has been a group set up called Teach the Future, which if you check them out online, they, they do amazing work and they're trying to put a bill through Parliament on sort of like an education review, which is just to completely overhaul the curriculum that we've got because the extent of my climate education at GCSE level was, I think, one chapter at the end of my combined science textbook, which was like five pages. And to think that you could summarise something that is possibly put in all of our lives at risk in five pages is atrocious. And also there's so much focus now on building back better in terms of environmental issues. And we're talking about having more green jobs in the future. But it looks to me that even young people and certainly adults, there's nobody actually really equipped and knowledgeable enough to take those green jobs on yet. No, definitely. It's something that I've been concerned about as well going through school. I don't know what job I want to go into. 
but I don't necessarily feel like I'm being prepared for my future because I want to go into mm-hmm. a green industry. And yet I don't really know what I'm being taught to prepare me for this green industry mm-hmm. that the government are crying, trying to create. And so it, this is the, the thing that annoys me sometimes is that the government have all these aims and pledges. And yet I don't understand where it's all going to match up because they're going to create a million new green jobs. And I just don't understand who's going to take them on because they still haven't changed the curriculum to prepare people to take them on. Tackling the climate crisis can't be just a, something that's shoved on on the end of something. It has mm-hmm. to be woven into the entire framework of government policy. And this, mm-hmm. I think, is where attitude is wrong on it on a global level, is the fact that it's something we're trying to weave into what we've already got. But the problem is the structure itself is what's creating the climate crisis. And so it's not something that we can fix by weaving into it. It needs to be this entire structural and systematic change, which I'm not going to lie, is it's a big change and it can be intimidating for people, but it isn't an optional thing at the moment. If we carry on the way we are, the truth is we're not going to have the planet and we can't carry on with this attitude that, oh, it'll all be okay, it'll fix itself, Mm. because however much I wish it it would, it isn't going to. And can you see one pivotal point where change needs to happen i mean you've talked before to me about climate guilt we're all feeling guilty is guilt being pushed on certain parts of society with the expectation that they've got to make the changes themselves definitely so one of my favorite facts that i read at the very start of kind of becoming an environmental activist or getting interested in the climate crisis was around so 70 uh, 100 companies are responsible for 70 percent of global emissions which for me was just shock. A hundred companies can single-handedly be creating 70% of emissions. And yet all I'd seen on social media and the news was about individual change and individuals becoming vegan and kind of switching to electric cars, which yes, they can have a huge impact and individuals change is extremely powerful. But why aren't we holding these big companies to account? Why are they being allowed to pollute this much without governments doing anything to sort of uh, mitigate what they're doing or to try and hold them to account and say, no, if you're doing this, you're going to have to compensate for it in some form, whether that's monetarily or environmentally. And I don't think that the focus should be on individuals, which is what I think a lot of companies are pushing for on social media, because as soon as they go, oh, this is your fault, you need to be solving it, it takes the blame off themselves and it takes the media pressure off of them. And I think that's a big change that needs to happen is this shift from looking at it as something that we as individuals are responsible for and more of a systematic thing that needs to change because I can't solve it on my own, you can't solve it on your own, Mm -hmm. but coming together and holding these big companies to account, we can. And how would you advise doing that? I mean, that's a massive question, but how can you start? Is that that writing to your MP? Is it being more aware of practices of some of the bigger organisations globally? I definitely think consumer power is one of the the biggest things that we have as as individuals. What we buy, what we consume, who we give our money to is a huge, huge indicator. So as soon as, if lots of people were to stop investing in one company that was a huge polluter, they'd instantly go, oh, okay, people want us to become more sustainable and then we will because these companies are purely driven by profit motives. So Mm -hmm. as soon as they see where the consumer demand is going and what people want, they will respond to that. But at the moment, I suppose it's a hesitation that people have where they're like, oh, but if I only do it, then it won't make a difference. Mm. But Mm. it does, whether that's switching banks to one that's sustainable, whether it's kind of supporting a more local business, your money is a huge, huge contributor to tackling the climate crisis. Manchester is also known for its huge online fashion retail industry and fast fashion is an issue that combines sustainability and feminism with it having a negative impact on the climate as well as paying workers who are often women with less than a living wage. So just wondered what are your views on how we can shop sustainably? 
definitely fast fashion is a rising problem and I, I say over lockdown a lot of people have been turned into shopping as a sort of coping mechanism yeah and I'm not gonna lie I have as well I've been looking at kind of scrolling through shopping and like oh I can wear this outfit when eventually we can leave the house um so I think a big one is looking into independent businesses or buying secondhand but the one of the bit is buying less the amount of clothes mm. that we have where people have this attitude that oh you can't be seen to be outfit repeating you can't wear the same thing mm. more than twice you can if you love an outfit if you buy a top and you absolutely love it and you buy it because you know you'll wear it loads and loads that can help the planet so much because as soon as you buy an outfit and go oh i might wear it inevitably mm. it'll end up in a landfill and it'll probably still be here by the time you die and that is a really scary prospect for me that the things that i'm consuming now by the time i have children it might still be there for them and i think that needs to scare people and people need to realize that what they're consuming isn't just something that'll go away when they do it'll be here for years and years and years to come and i think when we, we are buying things we need to realize what what that'll do and look at it as something that oh this might be here for 80 years is it going to be worth it am i going to use this 80 years worth of value it's fine you don't have to buy this really really expensive item um, that's from this really organic company because some people don't have the means to do that but to buy something that you know you're going to use and you're going to utilise it is probably the most important. That is so true. And I think before lockdown, obviously, you know, we heard of stories of young people buying an outfit for an Instagram photo from one night out and then binning it. So it's never going to see the light of day again. And I kind of thought that might change with the pandemic, but I don't think it's made much of a difference. As you say, people are literally storing them up, aren't they, to wear when we all get out to, to socialise again. Definitely. And I think it's one of the difficulties as a teenager as well, because it is this sort of thing of like, you don't want to be seen to be outfit repeating or you want to keep in with the fashion trend. And I, I'm not, yeah, I've never, I've never said it's easy to become sustainable. Um, it is something that I suppose you have to stick your head out for. But to take that jump, I suppose, and to decide to do that, you then have a huge impact on all of the friends around you and the network around you. And people do tend to go, oh, that's a really nice top. I've never seen something like that. If you go and kind of find this one from a charity shop that maybe isn't from the high street. And it's never as scary as it seems when you do things like this, because it can seem so intimidating that you're going to become the odd one out or that people are going to sort of stereotype you. But from what I've found so far, people that have decided to kind of maybe stop buying fast fashion so much or invest more consciously in kind of what they're buying, they've always had support from people and people have gone, oh, that's a great idea. I'll look into that as well. When I was at university, we only ever bought out of charity shops. I mean, it was like 20p for a top. And I've got stuff now that I've had for 20 years. My daughter will vouch for that. Yep. <laughs> Manchester is home, obviously, of so many social movements. And currently, it's pledged to be carbon neutral by 2038 is, I think, one of the most ambitious pledges actually in Europe. It's right at the top of the Build Back agenda. Do you think there are any specific steps that we should be taking in Greater Manchester in order to combat climate disaster? And are there any priorities for you? A big one for me is clean air. So Manchester mm. is one of the second most polluted cities in the UK, which uh, doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I think Manchester's public transport network leaves something to be desired sometimes. The tram, I love the tram. The Metrolink's amazing, but the bus network to say the least mm. is terrible as a young person that uses the bus to get to college and to get to Manchester and I don't have any priorities to start driving to these places I love using public transport and meeting other people and getting to speak to them and things like that but I do think that Manchester needs to invest in its infrastructure in order to help support people's changes because Manchester is such a big community and I'd say that's one of its strongest suits is how close-knit we are and how much of a community we are and how much we come together to make changes when we see there are problems but I think the council and the combined authority need to do more to support people in coming together 
And I think that does mean investing in the bus network, trying to kind of make things flow more, have more networks connecting people together, more places for people to meet, to help have conversations like this. It's mm. giving people the mechanism they need to help push for change and help bring people together, help educate themselves and things like that. Definitely. And I think you're right about the tram. I know there was a, a concern at the very beginning of the lockdown in March, April last year, when there was a, the concern that the Metrolink might actually run out of money and wouldn't exist and it needed a big amount of funding to keep it going. And my daughter was absolutely, what the hell do we do without Metrolink? Because it's like life was stopped. So I think young people do absolutely rely on public transport and certainly in Greater Manchester. We're just talking about, obviously, collaboration and Manchester being a great place with tight knit. I really value relationships and the importance of having purposeful ones. And I'm very, very grateful for all those people who have supported me over 25 years of having the business. And I could not have done my work without them. You've started very young in terms of creating your network, haven't you? I mean, and so just tell me how important that's been for you and how you've actually been able to nurture and develop those relationships. I still look back at it now and I have no idea how I've I've gotten to the place where I am. I call it a, a lot of lucky coincidences in the sense where I've been at the right place at the right time and I've met the right people and I've just I've managed things have just knocked into place so I've been to one event and I've met one person who's introduced me to another person and it's sort of been a domino effect from there but a lot of it is I suppose finding my own confidence to realise that my voice has value because as a young person so I, when I went to the first youth strike I'd just turned 16 in December and I had to realise the value of my own voice to believe that I, my voice had a place in the world because for so long as a young person I'd just been told you don't know what you're talking about, you're not old enough, your voice doesn't have value, you can't vote yet, you're just, you're just not, you're not credible enough and to contradict that was definitely a big personal journey because it's not easy to sort of try and undo everything that you've been taught for so many years that your place in the world is to be submissive and to just follow which isn't an option for young people because if we just sat and sat silently this crisis would have carried on and nothing would ever have been done and so to allow myself to understand that my voice has value and that it doesn't need adults validation to be heard was a huge huge aspect of it and I'm so glad that I've had networks to come and support me to help me on this journey to realise that my voice has a value and to allow me to speak at places where I've only ever been met with so much support and so much love. Mm, that's lovely to hear. As a business, we're very interested in how values impact the work that we do professionally and how we stand up and, and show up as, as individuals. And it's really clear that you live your life through your values. What's most important to you every day when you get up in the morning? A big one is making this world a better place. I think it's so easy to see the world as being so dark and there is just there's so much evil in it in a sense and so much misery and if I can do my bit to help make this world a happier place for everyone and to help make it safer and to make people's lives better that's a huge huge part of it because that makes me happy I think my happiness is rooted in helping other people obviously making myself happy is a huge aspect but um, allowing myself to help other people in making things more just and help make their lives easier, I think is a fundamental thing that every morning I go, right, what can I do today to to help make myself happy and help make other people happy? I ask everybody on the podcast as to which particular value of ours resonates mostly with them. I think I might know what yours could be, but I'm interested to hear it. I do resonate with a lot of them, to say the least. The, the Leaders Create Leaders one was a big one for me because I do think empowerment 
of yourself then empowers other people and it's the mm. same as if you smile at someone on the street they then smile back at you and they may smile mm. at someone else and it's this domino effect that you get and I think you don't realize how much of a network you have of people that trust you and the follow on from what you say because you can say one thing in a conversation about this book that you read and then they'll go home and read it and then they'll suggest it to someone else and I think so often we undermine the power of these networks that we have and we just brush them off but as an adult you have your work friends that you interact with you have colleagues you have your friends your family these networks are so powerful and everything that you do in every conversation that you have everything that you bring up has these subconscious ability to make a change and to influence how people think and I just it's so easy to forget that and to feel powerless but as an individual every single network that we have holds so much power and so to feel powerless just seems kind of silly because there is just so much you can do to influence things on a smaller level which can add up to huge change. Mm. And also believing that everybody has the ability to lead in their own way that and together if a collective of leaders is going to create so much more impact than trying to do all of that stuff on your own. Most definitely, and going into kind of being a youth MP, I really wanted to help make a change because politics at the moment, on like an adult level, is just so dominated by middle-aged white men, um, stereotypically. Mm. And it's to be honest, it still is however much we want to say mm. Parliament's diverse. And that just needs to change because inevitably we, the people we want to have leading the country need to represent the population because that's just going to what's going to make the best decision for everyone and mm. I think sometimes we forget that the fundamental aim of politics should be to create a happy and healthy population and I think sometimes that's forgotten in the way of party politics this is one of the things that's difficult about politics is it's just so many conflicting objectives and priorities and historic conventions and treaties and things like that and I think sometimes we forget that the people we should have leading the country need to represent who we are, because as soon as we get a diverse range of people in power, we're going to be able to expand what we believe, expand our beliefs and just create this country and this this world that hopefully is the best place for everyone. Mm, I totally agree. Well, let's hope so. So I was always going to think for you, plant trees will never see because I can really see that you are somebody yep. who's totally focused on legacy and so much of the work that you're doing now is not about you it's about the environment it's about future generations and obviously your generation so it's clear that you're creating a legacy as you go but what would you ultimately like to be remembered for I think one of the things I'd most like to be remembered for is to help create a positive change in the way of empowering people I have no view that I as a one person can solve any crisis or can solve any social justice problem Inevitably, what we need is lots of people doing things imperfectly. There's this view that before you do any sort of action or before you start to put anything into action, you need to be fully qualified and know everything about it. But in truth, having lots of people doing something imperfectly holds so much power. So to be a part of allowing people to see their own power as an individual, um, no matter what your age, your gender, your race, um, your class, everyone's voice has power to speak about their own personal experience and to help educate others and to help educate themselves and so to be a part of allowing people to understand that and to engage in politics and to make politics this thing that isn't kind of really elitist and something where there's just so many barriers for people to get involved in that it just becomes just so refined to open up mm -hmm. politics to everyone and to allow everyone to have a say and to be engaged and to help push for the change that they want to see would be a huge part. 
That's really liberating, I think, for people to understand that they don't literally have to have every answer and they do have a voice and it's okay to talk about stuff that you don't know everything about but you feel really passionately about. That's wonderful. I've got to ask you, Greta Thunberg, because obviously yourself styled as the Greater Manchester Greta Thunberg. And I know she's been a, a massive inspiration for you. And I read that you said that as soon as I saw Greta doing that, I knew I couldn't let her do it alone. So what impact did seeing her activism have on you? A huge impact. As a whole, she was a young girl, she's just a year older than me, who had gone on her own back, sat outside the Swedish parliament and viewed that her voice had an impact. And she'd had this self-belief that even she as an individual could sit there on her own and that people would come to her, and they did. And it was just so empowering to see that, that she could go and that people would support her and that she, even though she was knocked down by the media and she met so much opposition, there were always people there to help her. And I suppose that was one of the biggest things that intimidated me when I was younger is that I would be alone and that I'd kind of face all this backlash alone. But I never have. I've always met, had so much support. And from the start, Greta's always showed me that your voice has power and she's constantly kind of pioneered it and brought it to spaces that are so kind of dominated by adults like COP25 and she spoke in front of all these people and for me it's just incredible to see her doing this and I find it so empowering for myself to go right I can speak at these events and that everybody doesn't think I'm kind of completely illegible and things like this. (laughs) And have you met her? I've never met Greta unfortunately I'd love to one day Um, she's incredible I've been on calls with her and things like that but never in person. But you've spoken to her? Yes, we've done stuff online because through Fridays for Future Digital and things like that. She's still really active, but she's a very, very busy person, to say the least. She does so many incredible things. Yeah, and uh, so do you by the sounds of it (laughs) as well. Um, I'm going to ask you some quick Fair Manchester questions now. So what's your favourite green space in Greater Manchester? I did mention it earlier, but I'd probably say it's Holcombe Hill, um, Peel Tower near me. It, I love it how it changes through the seasons and it's just beautiful view. The silence and the wind brushing through the long grass is um, stunning. Fantastic. Do you have any favourite eco-friendly small businesses in Manchester? I do. There's Plentiful, um, which is a zero waste kind of like plastic free shop in my local village in Ramsbottom. And she moved, she's moved to a biz- bigger shop over the past year and she does everything you can imagine. Plastic free, chocolate, pasta, porridge, everything. I absolutely love it in there. Oh, that's a good shout out. I need to give that a go. I mean, I can't really ask you this question, can I? What do you order at the chippy? You're a vegan. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, not, not quite so much. I do love um, Vertigo, though, which does incredible vegan food in Manchester. They've got one near the Royal Exchange and it's just, oh, the, the bean chilli there is my personal favourite. When I used to go into Manchester <laughs> for meetings on the weekend, I'd always hop by to get something to eat on the tram. I am gutted because I was invited there just before lockdown. I've not been yet. So that's one of the first places I want to go afterwards. Are there any Manchester activists that have inspired you? Charlotte, who's um, the other Youth Strike Manchester host, she's constantly pushed me and supported me. And I think activism, you do need allies because it can be such an isolating place sometimes when kind of you get on the wrong side of social media and you reach a lot of opposition, which happens. And I'm not going to say that I've never kind of had hate and I've had kind of read the comments of news articles and gone, oh my God, am I doing anything right? It's really Mm. easy to kind of fall into this cycle of self-doubt and to feel powerless again but Charlotte's always been there to kind of remind me that my voice has power and that we are doing the right thing and sort of pick me up when I do get knocked down which is so important probably just as important as pushing for change itself. 
Mm, that's so important to have somebody who's got your back like that. And lastly, what's your proudest Manchester moment? It was probably the general strike for climate, which was September 2019. We had around 3,000 people come um, and it was adults, young people. There were kids as young as three there. There were kind of older people at the, at the other end of 70. And so to, to bring everyone together and to be able to be a part of organising an, an event that big was absolutely incredible. And I still get goosebumps thinking about like the march that we went on and just the sheer pe- the power of people. Mm. Um, and the atmosphere that is created from strikes like that just makes you feel like you could take on the world and make so much change, which you can. And I really can't wait to kind of get back to in-person striking after COVID and to feel that sense of community and collective power again. Mm. And just lastly, what words of encouragement would you have for those of us who really do care about the world we live in? And we do want to preserve it for future generations, but just feel overwhelmed that we can't make a difference alone. What can we do? One thing I'd say, going back to what I said earlier, is the power that your voice holds is immense and you should never underestimate it. The networks of influence that you have are so easy to sort of dismiss or just just not notice. But those everyday conversations that you have with your family around the dinner table, the things that you talk about with your friends on a night out, um, it can be little things like, oh, I've got a metal straw. This is because, and it's opening up those conversations casually. The climate crisis doesn't have to be this really intimidating and dark topic that it is where you have to kind of sit down formally and have a deep conversation about it. It's something that we're going to have to live with and it's something that we're going to have to change our day-to-day lives with. And so we need to start integrating it into everything that we do. And so opening up those conversations with people that you know is so important. And so kind of coming from this podcast, if you can go out and kind of tell someone what you've heard today and share that, and then they might tell someone else. And that in itself, that knock on effect can be so, so powerful. And really, really important, isn't it? It's those small conversations and just starting to move the needle on these issues. So Emma, thanks for joining me on We Built the City. You are an utter inspiration and I've learned a huge amount from talking to you today. And I know that our listeners all feel the same. And despite all the challenges faced by young people over the past 12 months in terms of having to study and and deal with all of the issues around mental health, you've still been able to balance studying with activism and supporting and educating others. And I don't think there'll be any doubt by anybody listening to this that you're going to be an extremely important leader for Greater Manchester and the world in the future. And good luck with your A-levels and everything that you've got in front of you. And thank you so much for everything you're doing for us. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me on the podcast. Emma has helped to build this city by putting preservation in front of profit, by understanding the power of our networks and by keeping her energy up with Vertigo's vegan chilli. We Built This City is out every Thursday when you'll hear from another incredible Greater Mancunian. If you want to find more out about Roland Johnson PR and you'd like some help in creating your legacy, please head to rdpr.co.uk for more information or give us a call on the same number we've had for 24 years 0161 236 1122. Thank you and see you next time.